Uh, for those of you who are new to Revolution Church, we like to study books of the Bible the way God has written them, verse by verse, and we are currently in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to open your Bibles there, you can. Uh, good morning, Sophia. How are you? Great. You're gonna, Sophia's going to read God's Word for us. If you'll follow along on the screen as she reads out loud. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that loves God's word, that we, are, we have committed, even though we fail, we've committed to follow your word, to make it the standard by which we live. And we, we believe this morning that this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to speak to us this morning from it. We believe that your word is perfect and is sharper than any two-edged sword. So, Lord, pierce our hearts this morning. Make us more like Jesus. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Anybody in here scared of going to the doctor? Don't like it at all? <laughs> I tend to be the other way around. I like, I'm not a hypochondriac, I don't think. But uh, I just, as soon as I see something and they say surgery, I'm like, let's go. When do you want to do it? Let's get it done. I don't like to procrastinate on those things, but this morning, Jesus calls people to come to a physician, and he talks about who is in need of a physician, and of course, we know that Luke also calls Jesus in the later chapter, the great physician, and so this morning, as we walk through this passage right here, we're going to divide it up into four parts. We're going to look at who Jesus calls. We're going to look at how the called respond to when Jesus calls them, and we're going to look at why the religious grumble. And finally, we'll see who needs a physician. In fact, if you notice that in this outline, in the way the passage is, is laid out in these 16 verses, there is a chiasm. It talks about who Jesus calls, and it describes them there towards the end. And then it compares two groups of people, those who actually respond to his call and those who get annoyed at the calling. And so let's move forward here in verse 27. After this, he, he is who? Jesus Jesus went and Jesus saw. And Luke is using this language on purpose. He's referring to another passage where, in chapter 19, he'll say, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus came and was seeking, and you'll see that pattern repeated here, right here in verse 27. Jesus is the one that's going out. Jesus is the one that's looking. Jesus is the one who is taking the initiative. In fact, God the Father ultimately took the initiative to send Jesus to come to seek after you. Now we think we are looking for God, and the truth is none of us took the initiative to do that. God's the one that prompted us to, to be the one who seeks. You see, it's God that entered into the garden seeking Adam and Eve. What were they doing at the time? They were hiding. Uh, God found Noah and called him to save the human race from the flood that was to come. God called Abraham. Abraham wasn't looking for him. God called Abraham to start a nation. <clears throat> God chose Moses. Moses was out in the desert watching sheep, and was, that was the way his life was. He was happy with it, that, and he, did, he never wanted to go back to Egypt. God's the one that called him to go back to Egypt to deliver his people. God found Gideon. What was Gideon doing at the time? He was hiding, and the angel sarcastically said, Hey, mighty man of valor, <laughs> you great warrior here hiding here. Um, in John 6, 46, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless, what? The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Aren't you glad that God the Father took the initiative to seek us? We had no business being sought. There's nothing about us that he should seek us. Romans 3, 10 says, <clears throat> as it is written, and he's quoting here from two different Psalms, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. If you were to put a percentage on it, it would be 100. 100% of people have turned aside. Together, 
they, not just individually, together, as a human population, we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. <clears throat> About 22 years ago, there started a movement called the Seeker Sensitive Church. And it started up in Illinois, in a suburb of Chicago, where a couple of pastors went out during the church hour during Sunday morning, and they noticed that people weren't sleeping in. People were washing their cars, mowing their lawns, playing frisbee in the yard, doing all kinds of stuff, but not going to church. And they asked them, why don't you go to church? And they had seven reasons why they didn't go to church were their top seven reasons, a very common theme. So they decided to start a church that would address these seven things. And some of these issues were good. There were some good th reasons why. There were some traditions the church was caught up that, was, that were just annoying people. <clears throat> but some of it went too far. Some of it was watering down the message, <clears throat> make it less offensive, identify more with the culture, try not to, you know, ra you know, just talk more about the things that people wanted to hear. And the movement's gone way too far. And we've seen churches that are just doing pretty much what's happening up here becomes entertainment. And what, the, what used to be a sermon is now three points in a poem and a lot of pop psychology. And so we have to be careful. Do we want to be unnecessarily offensive to people? No. We, we, want to make, we want to make lost people feel comfortable here. Paul anticipated in the New Testament, he gave several times where he said, if a lost person comes into a congregation, and he talked about the other issues, not confusing them, you know, with no interpretation of tongues and things like that. So there is a sensitivity we should have, but there, we need to always stay gospel-focused. And the only thing that should offend and must offend is the gospel itself, that Christ is a stumbling block. So we want to be careful to strike that balance. But you see here that the, the whole idea that there's people out there that are seeking God, they're not doing it without God doing something to draw them to that situation. We need to be like God too and take that initiative and go and seek the lost to share the gospel. Jesus is not here on earth anymore. He has left his church here to do the work that he did in person. We are now the ones that go and seek and share the gospel. After this, he went out and he saw, okay, and he, what did he see? A tax collector. Now, nothing's changed in 2,000 years. Tax collectors are not popular people. I mean, nobody's like, oh, great, look what I got in the mail from the IRS. Look, at that's awesome, you know? Nobody's excited about it, and they were even less excited in the time of Jesus, okay? Uh, tax collectors had to betray their nation. They had to turn their back on their family, on God and Israel to do something that was for only one reason, money. It paid really well. To be a tax collector, you made a very good uh, well income. And the Roman occupation, they knew the best way to collect taxes from Jews is have Jews do it. So they would offer Jews, certain Jews, a certain large amount of money. And what they could do, they said, you have to collect, you know, let's say 16%. Anything you collect above that, it's, you put in your pocket. So there was an incentive for them to overcharge people. So it was, a, it was a disloyal occupation and a dishonest occupation at the same time. Now, because families would just disown anybody who became a tax collector, and in The Chosen, it portrays it really well with Matthew, um, a lot of women would no longer want to marry a tax collector. And you saw this common theme through the Gospels where tax collectors and sinners or tax collectors and women of the street because tax collectors, nobody really wanted to marry them, but they had lots of money, and the prostitutes wanted money. So you saw these two hanging out together a lot in the Gospels. Matthew 18 talks about the steps of church discipline. It says, let's say somebody does something wrong to you. It says what you should do first is go to them and have a conversation between you and them alone. You don't talk to anybody else about it. You talk to them directly. And then the Gospel talks about step two, which most people don't ever take. If that person doesn't respond properly, it says then go get someone else. And it doesn't identify exactly who. Uh, it could be another brother and sister in Christ that it knows the person or maybe doesn't know them to be an objective party. You take them, you go have the conversation again with a, a second person. And then it says if that doesn't work with two or three, then you elevate it to the leadership of the church. And if the church, if it says it doesn't respond then, here's what it says, something really interesting. It says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be like a, someone who has turned their back on God. In fact, um, these conditions of the tax collector 
are very, this is what you saw. This is someone who is choosing a sinful lifestyle. It wasn't like, oh, sorry, that slipped. No, they were choosing to rip off their own people, okay? And so, and it was a day-to-day choice. It wasn't like once-in-a-while sin. It was a daily choice. And also, they were turning their back on God. They, they knew that they were doing that. They knew they were turning their back on God's people, uh, betraying their, their nation there. And they were also, let's see, here we go. They were siding with the enemy. So it's one thing to turn your back on your own people, but then to, to join in a partnership, in a business transaction with the very people who are brutal to your friends, brutal to your neighbors and your relatives. This is what you were meant to be a tax collector. And when they did that, they were only thinking of themselves and they were focusing on now. I don't care about heaven. I don't care about my future. I don't care about my children. I want some money now. I want a bank today. And actually, that's the definition of what it means to be secular. A lot of people think the word secular means without God. No, secular literally means nowism. That I am focused on the here and now. The material world that is here is all that matters. And if you're secular, you believe in this is it. The now is it. What I have is it. There is no afterlife. I am secular. And that's a focus that they have. The tax collector in the Gospel of Luke is a picture of us. A picture of us, a picture of mankind without Christ. Just look at this list. We are like tax collectors. We choose sinfulness. We've all turned from God. We turn from God's people. We side with the enemy who is not Rome but Satan. We think of ourselves and we are focused on the here and now. When we are without Christ, that is us. And the tax collector is a, an exaggeration of what all lost people are. So to come to Christ, you must not only repent of your sins, okay, you must also repent of your righteousness. Now think about that for a second. That may seem a confusing statement. But when someone does not know Christ, they're not saved, they all think, I'm fine. I'm, very few people think, I'm horrible, I deserve to go to hell. Very few people think that. Most people think, I'm good, and the Bible says all our righteousness to God are like filthy rags. We need to re- even repent of those things. You know, Aaron shared that you know, for a Filipino growing up in a Catholic context, to disre- disregard their baptism, to disregard their family's Catholicism, to disregard all that, that's something they have to repent of. All those things they thought were righteous. I'm a good person. And you have to realize, no, all my attempts to save myself are just an insult to God. When God sends his only son who suffers on a cross who is tortured to death for your sins, and he does that all to you for you because you're sinful, and you say, oh, no, I'm good. I'm good. I, I don't need that. It, it, it's an affront to the grace of God. The gospel, as Dr. Tim Keller describes, is that you are far more sinful than you realize, but you are also more loved than you can ever imagine. And most people have a really, really hard time with the first part. Me? Sinful? I'm not that bad. I mean, my neighbor, have you seen him? He's much worse than I am. I am above average. And that's what the average person thinks. We really need to realize and what we're repenting of is the fact that we think that we're good when we're really not very far from the tax collector at all. This tax collector, according to Luke, is called Levi. Uh, Of course, Matthew calls himself Matthew. This is very common. You see a lot of name changes, Saul, Paul, and Peter, you know, Cephas to, and Simon to Peter. You see a lot of name changes. And Levi, we don't know why he was called Levi. Maybe because he was from the tribe of Levi. It was a nickname. We're not really sure. Maybe he just had a first and middle name like a lot of us do, and he was called one thing by one. Um, and it says that he was sitting at the tax booth. When Jesus called him, he was doing his evil job. It wasn't like, hey, I'm really thinking about giving up the tax collector thing, and becoming a Christian. And that's when Jesus called him. No. <laughs> he was in the midst of ripping off, ripping off people when he did this. Now, Levi was a tax collector. We also think he had a, a side hustle making uh, denim jeans, but we're not really sure if that's supported in the Bible. Um, boo. Okay, I get it. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God showed his love for you, for me, for us, in that while we were still sinners... Think about that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait to say, you know what, Father, I think if the world gets a little bit better, then they'll deserve my love, and then I'll go die for them. 
In the midst of while they were crucifying him, he said, Father, what? Forgive them. Think about it. When we were at our worst, that's when Jesus came to seek and to save us. The whole idea of thinking I must clean up my act before I go to church or to get my act together before I follow Jesus is the same thinking that I must get well before I go see the doctor. That's the point of this passage. And so why don't people seek out a doctor? We'll talk about it in a second. So what did Jesus say to him while he was sitting there? Follow me. Follow me. The custom in those days was for a man to choose which rabbi he would attach himself to for religious training. They would say, you know what, I really like Rabbi Shmel. I think I'll go talk to him, or I'll go attach myself to him. But Jesus flips the tables here, no pun intended. Jesus went against the customs and took the initiative to choose his disciples. He went against the culture. Instead of them choosing him, he chose them. And so what does it literally mean to follow Jesus? We're not just talking about he's walking down a path and we're walking in his footsteps. That's a metaphor for how we live our life, how we follow Jesus. In Luke 9, 23, he says, and he said to him, said to all, if anyone would come after me, follow me, let him do three things. Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And I think those are in chronological order. You first have to deny yourself. Deny your righteousness. Deny your plans, your hopes, your dreams, everything. Just say, you know what? I will throw them all in the trash can if that's what God wants me to do. I'm saying no to me. In fact, I am so committed to saying no to me that I am going to crucify myself, not just once, but every single day. That that's my commitment, and that's how I'm going to follow Jesus. In Romans 10.9, it says, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... This is the underemphasized part of sharing the gospel nowadays. We tell people, you want to go to heaven? Oh, yeah. You don't want to go to hell, do you? No, no, no. We'll pray this prayer. Boom, boom, boom. Okay, great. Punch my ticket to heaven. And we've totally left out the lordship of Jesus Christ. You cannot come to Christ as a fire insurance policy only. You need to come to him and say, you know what? You gave your all for me on the cross. I surrender all to you. We used to sing that in church growing up at invitation time. Like the invitation every Sunday was, I surrender all, I surrender all. And that, you cannot accept Christ's gift of salvation without making him Lord. It's two sides of the same coin. You make him the Lord of your life. It doesn't mean you fix everything before you come. You just say, Lord, I'm a mess. Fix me, fix all of it. I give you all of it. And then you also believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He died on the cross for your sins and that he was buried, and he rose again. And when you do that, his lordship, married with the salvation, you are, you are saved, you are truly born again. So to deny yourself and accept Jesus as Lord is to transfer ownership of all that you are, all that you have, and all your plans to him. Now, people get all this confused and say, well, so the, when are you saved? And, and this, I hope this chart, you've seen this before, but I'll, this will clear up a lot of theological mistakes. The star represents when you accept Christ as Savior. You're born again. Just like Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, a religious man, you must be born again. And Nicodemus all confused. Of course, he hadn't heard a phrase like we've grown up with. But he's referring to, he said, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. You have to have a fleshly, physical birth, and you need to have a spiritual new birth. I, I experienced a new birth when I was nine years old. It's a, just like your birthday is a day and time, your spiritual birthday is a day and time. Now, you may not remember the day, okay? I don't remember mine. I know I, my physical birth is March 10th, 1964. Yes, I'm that old. And, but I don't know. I had to actually do some backwards math to figure out it was August of uh, 1973 when I got saved. I don't remember which day. I do remember, I think it was a Monday night at Vacation Bible School. Now, again... Don't get all hung up on the date, but get hung up on, did it happen? Did you truly trust Christ? That's the star. When you enter into relationship with Christ, you became a child of God. You were born again. You are now in his family. That, that blue line goes out into eternity. That will never end. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will have what? Eternal life. The Bible also calls it everlasting life. How long does everlasting life last? forever, okay? It's not until you mess up, okay? And we could get in that whole discussion another time, but that your relationship is you are now related to Jesus Christ. You are now part of God's family 
You have him as your heavenly father, you're his child. That relationship never changes. Then the other word is fellowship. Fellowship is how well you're getting along, okay? Like in your marriage, you have good days, you have bad days, but you still have, you're still married. And that, that blue line represents your marriage. Your, your red line is how well you're getting along. The same true is true with God. You can talk about it with your kids. You, there are some days your kids, you'd love them to death. There's other days you want to kill them, but if, it's not legal, so don't, okay? We have ups and downs, but they're still your child, amen? Okay, so when he says deny yourself, that's the moment you're saved. And then what do you do every day after that? You take up your cross and follow him. And some days you follow him better than others, and it's up and down. And so this is what he's talking about here in Luke chapter 5. So t deny yourself, take up your cross, follow him. Brings us to the next point. So Jesus calls Levi, or as we'll call him Matthew, and, and we, let's look at how he responded to that call. Now, again, he's in the middle of doing evil, and that's when he calls him. And leaving how much? Everything. He arose and he followed him. He left everything at the tax booth, including possibly the money he was collected. If everything means everything, I think he left a chunk of change behind. Okay? He left everything behind, and he followed him. And Matt, you're getting a perfect time. Can you turn off the light for me? <laughs> We're going to watch how the, the Chosen illustrates this. Mother of a son with talent like yours should be proud. She's ashamed that I could use the talent that God gave me against God. Next. You're good at something. You found a way to make a living doing it. It's that simple. Must be nice to live in a world so simply ordered. We live in the same world, Matthew. Next. Besides, what else are you going to do with a mind like yours? Matthew. Matthew, son of Alpheus. Yes. Follow me. Me? <laughs> yes, you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you doing? You want me to join you? Keep moving, street preacher. Do you have any idea what this guy has done? Do you even know him? Yes. Listen, I said to... What are you doing? Where do you think you're going, guys? Let me go. Have you lost your mind? You have money. Quintus protects you. No Jew lives as good as you. You're gonna throw it all away. Yes. I don't get it. You didn't get it when I chose you either. But this is different. I'm not a tax collector. Get used to different. I'm glad we passed by your booth today, Matthew. Yes. Shall we? We have a celebration to prepare for. You will regret this, Matthew. What's the tablet for? Grab it without thinking. You can put it back. No, no, keep it. You may yet find use for it. Where are we going? A dinner party. I'm not welcome at dinner parties. Well, that's not going to be a problem tonight. You're the host. That's so good. So Levi made a great feast. And, of course, that's the next part of this uh, at his house. And so it wasn't a small feast. It was a big deal. <laughs> and meals in those days, and still true somewhat today, that when you have a meal with someone, 
you're connecting with them spiritually. You're connecting with them relationally. And so to have a meal is to identify with the people at the table. In fact, first century people kind of had a superstition that if, if we're eating a big old chicken, you're eating the chicken and I'm eating the chicken, we're becoming more physically alike because we're ingesting the same thing. And so we're getting, creating a bond here. But metaphorically, that is very true. And he did this in his house. And note this. Luke gives Levi, Matthew, credit for this great feast. Luke's the one writing this. Luke was not there. He was an eyewitness. He interviewed people to write these things. But when you read the same account in Matthew, who wrote his own gospel, he leaves out these details. Because he's being humble. He's being humble in the way that he's writing this. In fact, this is a really good example for you and for me. There's a proverb that says, let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. That's hard to practice, but we need to do it. Bragging is not Christian. Okay? In Texas, say, it's not bragging if you can do it. Uh, no, it is. Okay? That's one part. That's a Texas, Texanism that is wrong. Okay? You know, if I was to tell you, oh, yeah, I'm a really good golfer. I, I, I'm, I'm this, I'm great, I'm that, whatever. You'd be like, I don't know if he is or not. But if someone else comes up to you and says, hey, Gary's a really good golfer. By the way, I'm not. Okay, if someone said it about you, then they'd be like, oh, wow. Why would you say that? You're an objective third party. We need to be really careful about it. And we've even perfected on Facebook and Instagram the, the humble brag. Oh, I was so honored to be a part of this, 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 when they asked me to speak. And you're not being humble or whatever. You're, you're just saying that so people will know what, what you're doing and why you're, why you're saying it. We, we even do that indirectly with our kids. We'll talk about their accomplishments and things like that. And just basically, because that's a reflection on us, how good of a parent we are in some way. So be really careful about doing that. Matthew set a good example by not talking about that. I'm not going to talk about all uh, things I've done. Let Luke talk about it is what Matthew's thinking was. And there was a large company of tax collectors. There was a great crowd there. A large company means could have been 50, 60 people there. This is a big occasion in his house. He was wealthy, so he probably had a big enough house to pull this off. But there's other tax collectors. Who's he friends with? Tax collectors. And it says others. Later it tells us with sinners, and sinners was kind of code word for prostitutes. And he invites all these people to the party. So Levi was so excited about being a new follower of Jesus that he threw a big party. That, that's a great idea. And he did this just to introduce all his friends to Jesus. Because his tax collecting days was over. This was the last hurrah. This was like a going away party for Matthew and an invitation to meet my, why I'm leaving this sinful lifestyle. You know, that kind of talks about how we need to use our homes as a way of reaching people with the gospel. To invite people to join us for lunch, maybe at, not at your home, it's at a restaurant, invite people to coffee, share a meal, share a coffee, do something together to have com gospel conversations. We've talked about this before, about how Jesus says to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do you love your neighbor? How do you bless your neighbor? And maybe you remember these letters here. First of all, the B, begin with prayer. Pray that God would either bring someone in your life that you can share the gospel with or pray for someone that already is in your life that you would have the courage to share your faith with them and that God, pray that God would open their heart and prepare their heart for that conversation. And then when you're having this conversation, before you just dump all, everything on them, you listen carefully to their story. One time there was a pastor who went to a Starbucks and he put out a sign and says, I'll buy your coffee if you listen to my story. Nobody took him up on it. He then took the sign down and wrote on the other side, I'll buy your coffee if you let me listen to your story. And then he flipped it back up, and there was a line of people waiting to tell their story. People want to be heard. And then after you listen to them, you show you truly care and are concerned, then usually they'll reciprocate and let, them tell you, let you tell them their story. And then third thing, the E in bless is to eat together. Share a meal. Get together with someone Take them to breakfast, take them to Waffle House, do something to where you're having a conversation and you're eating together, and also look for opportunities to serve them. <clears throat> Waffle House, you know, okay, maybe I should have picked something else, I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're cleaning out their garage, you help them. You know, um, Dave Rivera was working on pouring some concrete, I think he was doing a driveway, and Corey Holton, who lives around the corner, saw him working there by himself doing the job, and he started helping him. Next thing you know, Dave and Corey are friends. The next thing you know, they get the idea that these two churches should merge, and here we are. That's how all that started, because someone saw someone, served them, and helped them. And then the, the final S 
is share your story and how that fits into God's story. So begin with prayer, listen carefully, eat together, serve them, and then share your story with them. Let's go to the third point. Why, did, why the religious grumble? It's interesting here. You see this pattern all throughout the Gospels that the people who are the enemies of Christ, the ones that get really ticked off with him, the majority of those who rejected him were religious. That's what's really scary about America. And we were becoming less and less religious, very much so, which is actually, I think, a good thing in some ways. Because it was kind of like you had this divide the country into thirds, not evenly numerically, but just three categories. True believers in Christ, those who profess to be believers in Christ, and those who want nothing to do with Christ. And there's the mushy middle, who after all this mess of the last few years have said, you know what, I guess we're not Christians. And then just, we're still over here serving God, and it's just like, okay, good, thank you, because you're making the rest of us look bad with your hypocrisy, acting like you're all Christian, and you're not, and you're the ones people point their fingers at and say, see, hypocrites? So now you go join the woke crowd and, and just be that way if you want to be that way. But now, because the world gets darker, the light has an opportunity to shine brighter. So it's religious people that grumble. You see here it says, and the Pharisees and the scribes were the ones that, that were grumbling. Let's talk about the Pharisees and the Talmud, okay? The, the Pharisees actually started off as a good thing. Approximately 400 years before all this was happening, you know, there's the Maccabean revolutions, there's a lot of upheaval going on in Israel, and also there's becoming a religious split where there's certain rabbis who, because God is being so silent, think, well, maybe God didn't really mean all he said, and they're like, maybe the Bible really isn't true, maybe it's just good stories, and the Pharisees are like, no, 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 it's true. The, 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 the Torah is true. We believe that this is God's word. And then they went too far. The Talmud was the commentary on the Torah. And they're like, yeah, not only is the Torah true, the Talmud is God-inspired. And so they went too far the other way. We saw this happen in the 70s and in the 80s amongst evangelicals. Like, you know, the Bible is true. In fact, not only is the Bible true, it's the King James Version of the Bible that's true. And they went way too far with that. And they were like, yeah, and women shouldn't wear pants, and men, don't let your hair touch your ears, and just became ultra-conservatives in the evangelical movement to where they was like, gosh, and they just started to be called Pharisees there. So the Pharisees started off as a good thing, but then they went too far. We saw that in our own culture. Um, the scribes, on the other hand, were in ancient Israel, were learned men whose business was to study the law, being the first five books of the Bible, and transcribe it. They were the ones making copies. That's why they're called scribes. And they would write commentaries on it. And occasionally they'd even act as lawyers and give an interpretation of a legal point as needed. These are the ones who are grumbling. And they say to the disciples, because they don't have the guts to talk to Jesus directly, they say, why do you eat with and drink with tax collectors and sinners? There's the sinners word. Earlier I just said others. But now he's letting us know, put the cats out of the bag, who exactly they're hanging out with. Why does Jesus do that? That's a really good question. You, Luke here, I believe, is using a hyperlink back to Israel in the wilderness. And what was the big sin that Israel committed in the wilderness? Complaining, grumbling, complaining. He's like, yeah, you remember back in Israel when you guys complained about the manna, you complained about the quail, you complained about the water, you complained about Moses' leadership, you complained about everything, and now Luke's saying, and here are the scribes and Pharisees, and what are they doing? Complaining. They're grumbling again. He's saying, you guys are just like the immature children of Israel. So who was Jesus' biggest opponent? Religious people. Who was always trying to trap Jesus in his words? Religious people. Who wanted to have Jesus crucified? Religious people. Why do religious people have a hard time with Jesus and reaching sinners? I, I think it's because of pride. I think we could probably blame it on every sin, couldn't we? It's like, look at me. I chose Jesus. You other people didn't. Look at me. I cleaned up my life. What's wrong with you? Well, at least I don't do this. And all of a sudden, we take what started off with the grace of God, and we turn into the pride of the flesh. And we think somehow we're somebody because Jesus chose me. He didn't choose them. Now, Jesus is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You just happened to be there when the Holy Spirit called you and you, except for the grace of God, would be like them. I, it scares me to think what I'd be like without Christ. I, I was the youngest of six 
and I saw my older brothers and sisters go off in all kinds of crazy stuff. It was during the 70s. It was the, my older brothers and sisters were hippies. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was, I remember all kinds of fights with my parents. Brothers and sisters coming home drunk, coming home high. Girlfriends getting pregnant. All kinds of crazy stuff. But God chose to save me when I was nine years old. And while I didn't live a perfect life, I was spared a lot of that stuff. And the only reason I stand before you today is because someone just invited me to vacation Bible school. And man, I'd be worse than they were. I know it. I know how I struggle with sin, even being saved. Imagine if I was lost. I would have been crazier than my brothers and sisters because each one sequentially got worse than the one before. And so number six, I would have been six times as bad as the way I see it. But we end up doing, we, we wrestle with the Christians from being judgmental to being compassionate. And which way are we going to be? Are we going to be the judgmental church? Or are we going to be the compassionate church? I, I think you guys are actually doing a very good job of being compassionate. And I commend you for that. Don't let it ever change. I hope that 10 years from now, we're still that same loving, compassionate church that no matter what color person walks in here, what condition, what type of clothing, what level of education, whoever comes in here, we're able to welcome them and ask them to sit by us during church. Romans 15, this is, the, this is the heart of Paul when he says, therefore, welcome one another. And the word welcome means like to physically receive, embrace one another. And how does he want you to do it? As Christ welcomed you. Christ did not wait till Matthew cleaned up his life before he called him. He loved them while he was still sinners. And we can't start associating with people once they get better. We need to associate with them now. You see, I've illustrated it this way before, but I, what that unfortunate statistic is two and a half years after people become, an, after they've been a new Christian, almost all their lost friends go away. Now, some of that's for good reasons because some, some of your lost friends want nothing. They, they don't want to hear about Jesus. And if you don't want to drink with them anymore, if you don't want to party with them, you don't want to do drugs anymore, they don't want anything to do with you. Sometimes some of your friends reject you. That's going to happen. But sometimes we neglect some of our friends. We're like, we're so busy at church, you know, we go Sunday morning, Wednesday night, we're doing this and doing this and going to life group and all those things like that. And we've like written our lost friends out of our schedule. We need to hold on to them tight. You need to grab your church family with one hand and your lost friends with the other hand and don't let go. See, when you let go with your church family and you go with your lost friends, you'll backslide and you'll end up going back to that lifestyle you thought you walked away from. But if you let go of your lost friends and just hold on to your church, you will have no lost friends to share Christ with. And so it's important that we keep both and that we strike that balance between being with the lost and avoiding compromising situations. You see, when you go to be with your lost friends, you've got to be careful where you go, when you go, and what you do, but you still need to do it. It just takes discernment. Uh, about, I don't know, maybe four months ago, I was going for a walk for exercise at night, and uh, I was walking through my own neighborhood. My neighborhood makes it like a perfect oval. It's one mile long, so I can walk that. And I was passing by this house, and there's some, several people in the driveway drinking beer. And I said, hey, good evening. And they said, hey, how's it going? I said, good. And they said, hey, you want to have a beer? And my instinct was, I don't drink. And I'm like, oh, okay, no, thank you. And I just kept walking. And I got home like, you idiot. You just had a chance to talk to some lost people. Why didn't you just go and say, I'll take a bottle of water and just then hang out with them? And I totally messed up, just, just messed it up. We, I mean, the part of me that was judgmental was like, oh, no, I don't drink. But God's like, no, hey, here's some lost people asking you to come join them. Now, I wouldn't have been in a situation where, like, oh, look at him. He's a horrible person. They were in their own driveway. It wasn't like I was walking into a rave or a nightclub or anything like that. I mean, it was, just, it was a person's driveway, and I could just make sure I'm holding on to the bottle of water if I'm worried about that issue. Every time Jesus is hanging out with sinners, what are they doing? Having a meal. Meal's neutral. Jesus didn't go into the brothel. Jesus didn't go into the strip club. Jesus didn't go into the bar. Jesus went with dinner. Having lost people over for dinner is not bad. Going to their house for dinner. Now, there's some places you could go that would be bad, especially if you're an alcoholic or whatever. You go into certain places, you're going to put yourself in a bad situation. So we have to strike that balance between being with them but avoiding compromising situations. You don't take your secretary out to lunch 
It's assuming that she's female and you're male. You don't put yourself in those situations, but you do have situations where you're in a group setting having a meal. And this, this is, I think, where we as a church can do better. Okay? Um, bear with me as I share some statistics. They, church growth statistics say that you have to replace 32% of your membership every year just to stay even. even. And we, for the last several years, have stayed even. January of this year through June, we had a slight increase in attendance. But really, we've been hovering around 80s, 90s, and sometimes less. Only a couple times going over 100. And, and we're, we're replacing people. And here's why. 1% of your church will die every year. We lost Penny Sculton last year. That was our 1%. Um, you will have uh, 7% of your church congregation leave your congregation to go to another church in the area. We lost the Pattersons, who went to serve as children's ministry at another church in the area. There, was, there were six of them. That was almost 7%. Um, 12% of your church, well, let me go to the next statistic. 14% of your church will move geographically out of the area. And we've seen several families move off to Florida and to Arkansas and different places, and I try to help find them a church. But the, the one number that we need to focus on is 12% of your church will just either decrease their attendance dramatically or stop altogether. And in order to grow, you have to increase the number of people that are coming in, but you also have to retain the 12%, at least get that down to 6 7% to where they want to stay, where they feel connected. Um, let me share some things. First of all, in order to grow, we have to faithfully attend ourselves. We need to not be that 14% who's just slowed down in attendance. What's happened to the average church in America prior to covid the average church attendance of the average congregation was 76. After COVID, 59. So people just started staying home, watching online, and then some realized, I don't even really need to go. It was a big part of my life you know, before, but I've lived a couple years during COVID without it. I guess I shouldn't go anymore, and they just really haven't gotten back in the swing of it. In fact, they said that most churches, that, let's say a church of 200 prior to COVID, they still have the same people, but that church now is on 120 because they went from averaging three out of four Sundays to averaging one out of four Sundays. So it's the same church, same congregation, but it looks like they've gone down, but it's just people are not coming as faithfully as they, they should. And when we, when we attend faithfully, one of the things is a crowd draws a crowd. And just put yourself in the, fam, in, in the mind of a family who is, look, they've just moved here from Arkansas and they're wanting to look for a church Maybe they're not even Christians. They just grew up kind of going to church. And they walk into a church where there's a lot of people there. It seems exciting. And then they walk into a church where there's like a few people. And it's like, I don't know. Is this a cult? Or is, this, is this for real? <laughs> to some people, a crowd means legitimacy. I remember when we were at Bouncetown, We're meeting in a play place. Some people are like, yeah, well, we'll come back and check you out when you have a building and you have a real church. You know, buildings mean legitimacy. A crowd means legitimacy. You know, does it look like, is this church on its way down or on its way up? A crowd tends to draw a crowd. Another thing is, in order to grow, we're going to need to be prepared. There was one Sunday not too long ago where we were out of town, and I'll just say it this way, everything fell apart. And there was a family of seven that came that day that had, this was their third time to attend, and they told me that they had narrowed it down between two churches, us and another church in the area. They came that day, everything was chaotic, and they didn't even stay, they left and they didn't come back. And we got to be prepared. We got to be prepared to, to, when new people walk in the door, we've got to zip line over to them and say, hey, I'm glad you're here. My name is, what's your name? And I'm so glad you're here. In fact, if you want to come sit with my family, we'd love to have you. Just being prepared for that. And also, when, when we attend more faithfully, there's more connections. You know, sometimes someone comes and to church, and they're like, let's say they're a nurse. And like, hey, well, so-and-so in our church is a nurse, but, oh, he's not here today. You know, and it's like there was that connection missed because we said, you know, I don't feel too good today or whatever, and we, we missed. So there's all kinds of opportunities. People are not going to flock to Revolution Church because of Gary Milborn. It's not going to happen. People choose a church based on the people in the church. When they make connections, when they make friends, when they say, oh, wow, I didn't know you go to church here. We live in the same neighborhood, or we go to the same recreation center, or whatever it may be. Number two, we need to develop friendships with the lost. We need to reconnect with our lost friends. We need to take them lunch, have them over for dinner, have a barbecue. I know of one church, their, their strategy is every month a different family has a barbecue 
and, and they invite their lost friends to that. And they, they just have a big barbecue and they invite people from the neighborhood to that and they host it in different neighborhoods. And it's a, it's a great idea. Number three, we need to regularly invite people to Jesus and his church. Some people say, well, you don't need to invite people to church because church is for the saved. You just need to share the gospel. Lost people, Paul anticipated lost people in the congregation. It's not, don't, don't invite people to church only and never share the gospel. But don't think you have to wait till you share the gospel to invite them to church. Do both. How many of you were saved in a church service? Raise your hand. It works. It still works. I'm one of them. And, and so these three things, I believe, I've been thinking about this for like six months. And I just felt like this was the time to share that. And, and I, I want you to think about that. Let's say you're one of those that comes about once a month. Can we get that up to two or three? <laughs> you know, you used to be four out of four. Whatever it may be, being faithful to God's house is important because it, it, it shows that we're growing. If we have to start there, not just with new people. I want you to also develop friendships with the lost and, and be an active witness for people as you invite. Like we have these postcards back there. Man, pass these out. We're going to get more soon. But they'll be new. They have the QR code. We're going to share the gospel. And yes, this is a commercial on church growth. I'm not, I'm not ashamed to say that. In fact, I really believe we need to do this with God's help. So I, I want to take a moment right now just to bow your head and pray. And it, you would help God. You would ask God to help you with your church attendance, with your relationships with the lost. In fact, think right now of someone you know that's lost that you wish was sitting next to you in church this morning. And then pray for courage to invite them. Thank you, Father, for helping us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we saw who Jesus called Matthew, a tax collector, while he's collecting taxes. We saw how Matthew responded. What did he do? He walked away from everything. We saw why the religious grumble. They, they have pride. Their, their religion is their problem and their idol. And now it brings us to the last point. Who needs a physician? Who needs a physician? And Jesus answered them and said, those who are well, and I, I added the quotes here, because none of us are well, based on the previous verses. But you know, those who think you're well, you obviously don't need a doctor. But who am I? I'm, I'm come to seek those who are sick. So what are the first two steps of the 12-step program? How, I remember, what's step one of the 12-step program? You admit that you have a problem. Um, we admit that we are powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. Or alcohol or any, choose your drug. Uh, step two is we come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And that's the 12-step model. The guys who found us were Christians, and they got this from the Bible. You cannot get saved unless you admit you, you're a sinner and that only God can save you. And that's true for not only alcohol, it's, it's true for sin. Jesus says, I am called the so-called righteous, air quotes here, but I've called sinners. That's who I'm here to call. So, Matt, if you'll do the lights again, here's how this is uh, in the, uh, the passage when Matthew goes to dinner. Always was. <laughs> it was teaching? <laughs> Anyone want any grapes? Barnaby, you eat a lot. <laughs> Very observant, Matt. Thank you. Simon? <laughs> you know, Matthew, when you're not behind iron bars... Quite handsome. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> what is going on? Hmm. May I help you? We were just on a walk and we heard voices, and I thought it sounded like. But surely not. And yet it is you. Would you like to come in? We would never. Never be caught dead in a. In a what? In a tax collector's house? Not only that, but we say, do you know what she and he, they are... You seem to be having troubles finding your words, man. Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? There's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I must say, I am shocked. She is from the Red Quarter. Much of what is done there cannot even be spoken by my tongue or across my lips. It is so unholy. The mere mention of it would 
defile me. Sounds like a personal problem. But him and the others he works with, they betray our people for money, and they're not even sorry. If you're so offended, then leave. Let them speak, Andrew. They've never offered guilt sacrifices in the temple. What? The priest keeps the records. We check them. Tax collectors are not welcome at the temple. We'd like them better if they made the proper sacrifices. This is not about me. This is about what God wants. You are forgetting the scroll of Hosea. Hmm? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy more than sacrifice. There are righteous men on the lookout for you. And they are weighing every word you say. Is that a threat? Please let them know this, Yusuf. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Is everything under control here? Uh, yes. We were just going on our way, Centurion. As Primi Ordina to you. Primi Ordina. All right. So who is Jesus calling? Calling sinners, which is everybody. Those who need to see it, not think that they're righteous, not think that they're well, but realize their sin sickness. And what is he calling them to? He's calling them to repentance. What are they exactly repenting of? Well, Hebrews spells this out pretty well. It's talking about repenting from dead works and of faith towards God. He's calling them to repent of the things they thought would save themselves. My baptism my offerings, my church attendance. If I do enough good things, God will accept me. That's the way I was growing up when I was a little kid. I was taught if you just do enough good things, you'll go to heaven. And the Bible says you need to repent of those. All those works are dead. They cannot save you. They can't do anything for you. You need to simply have faith towards God and his son, Jesus Christ. You couldn't spell it out any more clearly. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's something you receive. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. it in, and read the part in orange with me. Not a result of works. People say, well, there's just so many different denominations because there's so many different ways to interpret the Bible. How else do you interpret that? And yet denominations will say, be a good person, get baptized, do this stuff. And they'll have a long list of things you should do. One denomination says there are 16 things they've identified that will help you lose your salvation. It's like, where did they come with this list? It's like, why not read the Bible the way it's written? It's not a result of works. Then, and why is it not a result of works? So that no one can boast. You see, if heaven was because I kept the list, I kept seven sacraments, I got baptized, I fed the homeless, then when I get to heaven, guess what? I'm like, boom, I did it. High five, Lauren. Yeah, we're here. We kept the list. And we could talk about, you know, hey, Don, why are you here in heaven? Oh, man. I, uh, I won the lottery, and I donated all the money to an orphanage in Ukraine, and I took care of orphans. Wow, aren't you amazing, Don? Look at that. And we just said to be bragging about each other, about how good we are, and we all kept the list. And that is not heaven. Heaven's going to be like, Aaron, you're in heaven. And you're like, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, was, I was young and stupid and selfish, and I just did all kinds of things, and I'm, I'm not ashamed of it, but Jesus loves me anyway. How did you get here, Gary? I don't know. I don't know, I spent so much of my life trying to please myself. And yet Jesus loves me anyway. Isn't God good? And we're going to be bragging about Jesus for eternity, not each other. The Bible is super clear on that. Jesus answered them and said, those who are well, or think they are, they have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So this begs the question, why do some people not go to a doctor? Some of you may be like that. Why do you not go to a doctor? And There's a list longer than what I'm going to share, but think about this it says first of all some people don't think they're sick they don't they don't they don't think they have anything wrong with them pancreatic cancer is one of the most serious cancers there is and it sneaks up on people quickly and like my brother jerry he got diagnosed in june and in august he was dead and i'm sorry not jerry frank but anyway um it, pancreatic cancer boom it, it's it's a killer and a lot of people don't even know that they are sick or they don't think they're sick there's people who they think that they can get well on their own. Oh, I'm going I'm to beat this. I'm going to beat this. I'm just going to keep drinking orange juice and drink emergency, and I'm going to do it. And sometimes we can when it's a flu, but we're talking about sin here. Some people don't trust that the doctor can make them well. I don't know. I don't know if I believe in that stuff. That, that doctor's a quack or whatever. I don't believe in that kind of medicine, whatever. And so they don't trust the doctor. 
And then there's those who, they don't think that the doctor was willing to make them well. You know, I don't have any money, and he, he wants money, and I don't know if he would treat me. But listen to what Jesus says. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why won't you come to the doctor? He's coming to seek you. Romans chapter 6 says that the wages of sin, the cancer of your sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised the dead, you will be saved. Maybe there's someone here this morning, Jesus is seeking you. You're not here by coincidence. You know the Holy Spirit of God is speaking to you right now, and you've never come to Christ to give your life to him. Would you do that right now? Maybe you're watching online this morning, and this is, you know that God is speaking to you through this message and through this passage, this story. Maybe you're Matthew, and he's coming to you while you're in the midst of your sin. You don't have to get better before you come to the doctor. He's here to cure you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for loving us while we were still sinners. And Father, my prayer this morning is if there's someone here without Christ that's never been born again, that today would be the day that they repent not only of their sins, but all of their righteousness, and they'd realize all of it is worthless without Christ. And that today they'd give their life to you because you gave everything for them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to do a question and answer time. I don't think Amanda's in here. Ashley, would you come help me with a question and answer? And so my number's right there if you'd like to text it in. Ashley, looks like there's a few already here. How are you doing this morning? Good. My shadow decided she could go to class this time. There we go. There's <laughs> the bottom one. Okay. In Mark 4, 11 to 12, Jesus explains to his disciples why he speaks to outsiders in parables, saying, so they may lo indeed look and yet not perceive. They may indeed listen and yet not understand. Otherwise, they might turn back and be forgiven. What did Jesus mean by this? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, so Jesus, the, the common complaint from the disciples was, why do you keep speaking cryptically? You know, Why do you keep talking in these illustrations, these parables? It's kind of like when a young lady meets a, a guy and they're both interested and she's not going to just throw herself at him, you know? She's going to kind of play the game to see if he's really interested, if he'll really step up, be a gentleman, open the door for her, actually ask her out. She's not going to walk up to him and say, hey, I'm single, would like to have six kids. Interested? You know, <laughs> that's just a little too forward. And Jesus does the same thing. He's separating those who are really interested from those who just want miracles, those who just want free fish sandwiches, etc. Um... But he did speak in code to separate from those who are being called by God. Uh, and and I, that gets into some part of it that's over my head, to be honest. So I don't have a deep theological answer for you than that, other than what I just said. But that's his explanation for speaking in parables. All right. In this day and age with technology, it's hard to be close with others to be able to share the gospel. How do Christians combat the false intimacy of social media in order to pursue meaningful interactions? Yeah, that's great. Um, it, the, the, uh, those devices right there are killing us. <laughs> they are. They, we have so many friends on social media, we, we have fewer real friends. And we've, we've got to bust through that. You know, we can say, oh, I'm just going to tell all my friends on Facebook about the Jesus. Okay, go ahead and do that. But don't think that's going to work as effectively as you sing across the table from someone, sharing your heart and listening to their story. So we, we've just got to be the fish that swims, swims upstream and go against the flow, and meet our neighbors. We live in a world where people have no idea who lives across the street from them. We don't know what their birthday or their anniversary is. We, we don't know any of that stuff. We've got to step out of it. We, and the problem is we say we're too busy, but then we stream and binge watch and do all kinds of things. We're really not as busy as we think we are. We just need to put down the phone, put down the remote, step outside, go have a conversation with somebody. Yeah. Pray for those people that you're friends with on Facebook and you're friends with on Snapchat and whatever, but you ha you can't count that as intimacy because mm -hmm. I have lots of friends on social media, friends at work I spend all day with and I work from home. I don't know them. I can't have a real conversation with them without the, you know, without the possibility of them just literally ignoring what I say or, you know, just chalking it up to me trying to be churchy church person yeah so i think that's probably yeah probably right Be begin with prayer listen carefully 
eat with them, serve them, share your story. And if you can't do those things because they're six states away, that you should probably pursue someone who you can do that. Absolutely. With. Okay. Uh, it says, please, please play for Stan and please pray for Stan and Reva. An ambulance just left their house with Brother Stan falling in his car. Oh my! All right, okay, let's we're gonna, pray for that. Right? We're going to do that. Um, there's no more questions. We're going to do that right now. Let's stand. Eugene, would you pray for Miss Reva right now for us, please?